welcome to the newest episode of our podcast. This is AEP 16. This podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-monthly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Check out The Freelancers, a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you could buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. If you want to reach out to us, you could find us on Twitter and Instagram at analyze educate. You could also find our Telegram channel that is analyze and educate. It's the little and symbol not spelled out. So for this episode, we have two guests on, two of our contributors with the Bulletin from the Borderlands. We have Good Political. He has been one of our contributors for a while now, and he does open intelligence, data, and international analysis, and that's to uh, basically inform you guys at the simplest levels. And then we also have Sinotalk. He is one of our newer contributors to the Bulletin. He focuses mainly on China and the Pacific, and he's been putting out some pretty good stuff ever since he joined up with the Lethal Minds Journal. Hope you guys really enjoy this conversation we had. Um, you know, it's pretty informal, uh, like always. And we mainly just talked about China, touched on uh, the general Pacific a little bit. My main purpose in doing this episode was one of you guys uh, basically asked me if I could talk about the uh, COVID protests in China, the government reaction, and then just sort of generally talk about China and the Chinese military. Um, I don't really know enough about China to comfortably answer that question, at least not without doing a lot of additional research. So I figured it would be a good opportunity to have these boys on. Um, you know, first time either of them have been on the podcast. So introduce you guys to them. And I think we had a good conversation. So I really hope you guys enjoy listening to it. All right, everyone, welcome uh, to this episode of the podcast. Like I was saying, we have good political and Sino talk on here, and we're generally going to be talking about China, uh, the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, and then we're also going to be talking about COVID a lot. And we'll kind of veer off on like little tangents as far as the Pacific goes, but we'll mainly stick to China and the area surrounding it. So, um, this is the first time I'm having either of you guys on this podcast. If you want to just briefly introduce yourself, to let uh, Sino Talk go first. Yeah, so, um, maybe Sino Talk um, mainly created this pot of my uh, Instagram page as a way to put on information relevant to China. People may not know or have no idea for. Um, it spans, as you may know, both of y'all may know, it spans like military, political, geopolitical. Domestic foreign policy things as that. Um, also write a lot for the Lethal Mind Journal and also bulletin the bulletin page. 
Awesome. Okay, awesome. Good political. What's up, guys? Uh, my name is Josh. I obviously admin, good political, also admin, good history memes. Um, I have a background in criminal justice and international relations. Um, I contribute for the uh, Lethal Minds Journal. Also write for Atlas News and Defense Politics Asia. How long have you been writing for Atlas? Uh, since July of this year. Okay. How do you like doing that? It's pretty awesome so far. Um, everybody on the team is awesome. Uh, a lot of ambition, a lot of brain power on there, and they have some good resources, which helps me. It's really helped me actually grow. Honestly, doing both that and Lethal Minds has really helped me like grow as a writer exponentially from where I was at this point last year. So it was very cool. Okay, awesome. How many um, people do you have on the Good Political team? Uh, good Political is, let's see. So it's myself as obviously the uh, creator and all that. And I have a friend of mine um, named Sebastian. Uh, he also writes for Atlas. Uh, he's kind of like a co-admin, basically helps me uh, with posting and stuff when I get busy. And then we have about 10 irregular contributors that just kind of, they send things in whenever they want to and so that they can get a little more like recognition and kind of attention and stuff like that. Um, and they also help out on the Lethal Minds Journal every once in a while as well. Okay, awesome. Um, you good if I just call you Josh? Keep it yeah, 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 go for it. Makes it easier. Awesome. Um, well, I guess what we could get started with is we can give a background on China's zero COVID policy that's kind of been going around in the headlines really a lot for the past year, if not more. Um, and if we could just give a brief kind of background on what that is, that will lead into this recent round of uh, protests that have been going on. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, uh, Joss, if you want to go first or if you want me no, to No, no, feel free. I feel like you know more about this than I do. Okay. Um, for the zero COVID, uh, the policy was based upon more political than science, if anything. Um, you had the extreme lockdowns where people were literally welded or wired shut in their homes. Um, people had to be test, had to go undergo testing, mandatory testing once once a day, if not more. Um, the lockdowns were occurred with little to no warning. So you had people scrambling to get food and other items that are necessary to survive. Um, and that kind of bled into the whole supply chain because people had to literally live in the factories that they worked at that or they just completely shut down. So you have people not getting any work or not getting any pay. Uh, any and then you either had to get vaccine, you, you had to get vaccinated, but the vaccines were mainly pushed to the working age, the 18 to 35 group. They didn't really try to push the elderly to get vaccinated because they kind of figured the lockdowns would protect them from getting COVID. Um, 
regarding how zero COVID actually led to the protest, um, there was a fire, I believe, on November 14th. Don't call me on the exact date. Um, in Yurumike, the capital of Xinjiang, where 10 people died, according to state news, but people on Chinese social media state, stated at least 20 died. So there was disconnect between the actual numbers of dead and injured. Um, the reason why a lot of the reason why that many people died is because they couldn't get out of the out of the apartment complex. They were literally wired shut. They were literally wired shut into their apartments. Um, not only that, the um, firefighters actually were prevented from uh, from getting closer to the uh, apartment complex because of the local authorities saying that no, it's locked down. You can't enter this. You can't enter the area. So you actually had like video come out of them actually trying to spray the fire in the and the actual like stream was like 20 feet below where it was needed. And so for the listeners, think about the Xinjiang region where this happened. That's like really all in the backdrop of really this genocide that the Chinese government is committing against the Uyghurs, which are this Turkic like ethnic minority that inhabit Xinjiang, majority Muslim ethnic group and there's this genocide that's been going on for like god knows how long and it's been widely reported now but just think like this fire where all these people are locked into this home and are just burning alive all comes in the backdrop of this genocide so it makes me wonder like how much of what happened regarding that fire how much of that had to do with the really like ethnic tensions, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, or is, is all that kind of just like going by the wayside and this would have applied to really like anybody in any region of China? In a weird way, I thank you for bringing that up because I was gonna actually touch upon that next. Um, the dead and injured were actually Uyghurs. Um, and so the protests that occurred in Yumake after the fire, was a mixture of Han and um, Uyghur ethnic groups. So you had this, so you had this protest that both ethnic groups that, for lack of a better term, hated each other, joined together protesting against zero COVID because Uyghurs died. Not only that, but you had this you had other protests to occur in Shanghai, in Beijing, in Chongqing, those other places. But especially the protests in Shanghai is the most significant because it was Han. There wasn't really many Uyghurs there, um, but just the mere fact that they've set up a memorial service on Yurumake Road, like at the street sign, and then and the protests spontaneously erupting out of that says a lot about how people put aside the differences and look at the regime and says that we really don't want zero COVID anymore. 
we and don't. that's that's what happened in shanghai yes yes it's very um, interesting like that's very symbolic that they chose to do it on that road how's the city pronounced again uh okay okay yeah it's very interesting that they decided to do it on that road like they very clearly did that for a reason oh yeah i mean it was symbolic more so than anything because and they even said like we're all chinese regardless if you're a Uyghur, regardless if you're a Mao, a Miao ethnic group in southern China, regardless if you're Tibetan, regardless if you're Mongolian, ethnic Mongolian or Tibetan, we're all Chinese. The Communist Party should have protected them, but where were they? Um, another aspect of the, pro of, of the protest was the fact that it occurred right after the World Cup events or the World Cup matches ended for the day. So you had all these people coming out of the bars, out of the taverns, things as that, and witnessing people not social distancing, not even wearing masks, hugging, kissing, high-fiving each other, things that the Chinese Communist Party said, you can't do this because zero COVID is so dangerous, or, or zero COVID is needed, or, and COVID is so dangerous, all the other, uh, nations are going through are having a rough time but China is not and then for them to see that in real time kind of open their eyes and realize that they were just they were essentially lied to for the past two years yeah and you you guys can correct me if I'm wrong but from what I've seen it doesn't really look like the Chinese government ever got COVID under control quote unquote you know, I mean, you could argue what does that what does that really mean for a country like the United States where we have, um, you know, individual rights and there's only so many measures the government can impose on us. It's a completely different conversation in China where the government is all powerful. The citizens really don't have individual rights in so much as the government will really allow them to. So I guess just going back to like what you saw in Wuhan, like in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, in early, early 2020, I mean, there were some pretty draconian measures that were imposed, going back to people, you know, like literally being welded inside their homes, um, people not being able to go outside to get food, go to the grocery store, you know, people like starving in their homes, people couldn't go to work. Um, the death toll was like, from all really available data that did not come from the government was pretty astronomically high compared to other countries. So I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't really look like the Chinese government got it under control. Um, and it's just interesting to see because it really, I feel like China in their dealing with COVID, it hasn't really been talked about much up until the past few months when you have the protests in Shanghai, you have the protests at the Foxconn factory that makes iPhones, those kind of things are really what brings it into the headlines from what I could see. Uh, you want to chime in, Joss, or we were just... <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly listening. Uh, I don't know too much about the zero COVID policy, um, but I guess to throw something in there is I find it incredibly interesting, their, their sudden flip. You know, we were just talking about the the extremely draconian measures they've taken for the last two years, essentially. 
And then because of these widespread protests we've just seen, or maybe not because of them, um, don't know exactly for sure, but it's just convenient timing perhaps, uh, all of a sudden now they have essentially no COVID um, restrictions whatsoever going on. And to, to the point where it's actually made other countries like Japan and the United States take back steps to make, um, basically counter China's um, opening of their policies. Like we've, we're now requiring, uh, you know, Chinese people flying into the United States to um, have, I don't know if they have to be vaccinated, but they have to have negative COVID tests and they have to undergo like a period of isolation. Japan's doing something very similar. They've made it clear that like the whole masking thing is not going to go away anytime soon in Japan. Like it's, it's very interesting to see how all of a sudden China flipped and now we're beginning to flip back a little bit as well. Yeah, it's really funny. I mean, looking at uh, looking at the headlines coming out in the past few days, like there was the one about 50% of passengers from, I, I believe, two flights coming out of China into Milan. Mm -hmm. Like half the passengers on both of those flights were COVID positive. And it's just interesting to see because this is basically exactly where we were three years ago spare like two weeks I think and it's yeah. like it's such a flashback yeah no um it is it, it does offer flashbacks like you pointed out Brody and also like how Joss pointed out that the CGP decided to end zero COVID um in the way that he did um it was Xi Jinping's decision to end this in it that's actually how um we ended, China ended up in that mess that they're in right now concerning the uh, surge of infections is because Xi Jinping said, okay, no more zero COVID. If they're, um, the protest calling for not only the communist party, but more importantly, me to step down is the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, the reason they were heading towards like a managed opening um, I want to say they were trying to get, they were trying to open up Japan or trying to open up China to outside visitors, maybe March at the latest, if not sooner. But that was mainly due to the economic turmoil that's been going on because you had people not working again. You had people not working, not being able to get wages. You had people not being able to pay their mortgages, which led to the uh, real estate, ongoing real estate crisis. Um, and then also with that, that snowballed into the small and uh, medium bank crisis that also, that, also went, that also occurred in July and Zhengzhou, uh, the capital of Henan, where you had people, uh, we had local police and local party officials not only attempt to make people leave by using COVID restrictions against them, but actually rounded them up and beat them as they protested. So, um, and then regarding the, and then regarding the zero COVID, like regarding going back to Xi, he wanted, I don't think he wanted to end it like how he, how it did wanted to end uh, zero COVID. How he how he did how he did it. 
I just think that he was just such a vain individual that as soon as he seen that the party or that the people didn't were asking him to step down during the protest, he's like, that's fine. We'll see where we'll see how this goes. If we want if we want no if we want no more zero COVID, that's fine. You were just gonna suffer. Yeah, that's that's it almost seems like it's a punishment. You know what I mean? Like he's saying, okay, fine. It's obviously it's obvious to the world, essentially, even though we haven't admitted it, that we don't have COVID uh, under control. And so we're gonna lift our COVID policy and let the Chinese people suffer, let basically the world suffer. And maybe, I don't know, maybe the Chinese Communist Party is hoping that it'll kind of backfire on the people wanting it to end. And then they'll kind of see like, oh, maybe we should have had these restrictions after all or something like that. Because when you compare it to something like the Hong Kong protests, or, or even like six months ago when like people's bank accounts and such were literally being frozen um, mm-hmm. due to like COVID lockdowns and stuff like that, that. The crackdown there, like especially in Hong Kong is kind of like unprecedented. Um, well, not, not exactly unprecedented, but it, it, was, it was quite like crazy to see. Uh, and then compared to the kind of crackdown for these recent protests, um, while there it was like obviously a heavy crackdown, there was a lot of clashes with police and uh, a lot of like armed uh, standoffs and stuff like that. But it was still, it's interesting to see in the end how the Chinese government actually like backed down from their very firm stance, the very firm stance they've held for two years now. And so I kind of wonder if maybe this is, if they wanted it to be this way or at least they're adapting to make this work to their advantage, knowing full well that COVID is kind of unrestrained right now in China. I think yes. it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I, I think it is very interesting to see. And I, I guess I could probably agree with you guys in that it almost seems like it may be a punishment. Like really, you, you guys want these restrictions gone so bad. We'll see how you deal with them being gone. Right. At, at the same time, you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, because this is like definitely not my area of expertise at all. But from what I've seen, just like in the amount of research on China that I've done, um, the Chinese Communist Party seems very reluctant to back down on a position once once they've really dug their heels into the ground. Yeah, right? once they really make a hard decision on this is where they want to be in regards to this policy. Like it, they do not easily back down. And it makes me wonder if without trying to, you know, exaggerate too much, if like these recent round of protests that we saw, I mean, are these the biggest protests we've seen on the mainland since Tiananmen Square? Like, I, I don't have any illusions that China was going to, you know, collapse overnight, like no way in hell. But these protests from what i could see were a pretty big deal yeah no they go ahead no no i'm agreeing yeah no um they were um that's actually is um they were the biggest protest in since cinnamon square that's actually why the responses that they did um they did deploy the people's armed police their um she's xi jinping has controllable them. They they're separate from the PLA. They their chain of command is the Central Military Commission, which essentially 
since Cease controls it, he controls the PAP. He controls the PAP. Um, and so you did see some deployment of them to various places, various uh, well-known places. This is the Bund, uh, People Square in uh, Shanghai. Um, they cut off Beijing entirely from like people going in and out um, the day after the protest. Um, and they just decided to let the people, let the local police handle it. And we'll utilize, and we won't crack skulls or too many skulls now, but we're gonna find them because in China, you're watched 24 seven, 24 seven. Um, it's a surveillance state, like people, uh, people's cell phones are essentially hacked once you're entered the, entered the uh, mainland and actually at, uh, connect to a, a tower. The Chinese Communist Party can actually tap your phone and use it as a ear, as a um, hearing device. It's a bug. I actually had that happen to me on multiple occasions during my stays or during my travels in China. Uh, in China. Um, regarding Would you be willing to touch on those a little bit? Yeah. So eh, I'm able to. Like the last time I was there in 2019 um was the most significant because we were there um at a study abroad like talking about the domestic politics the economics and foreign policy and it was myself a professor and a uh, another student at the time we were talking and then all of a sudden uh, i want to say that the professor actually said I wonder what Xi Jinping is going to do about the South China, no, not, not the South China Sea, but the East China Sea. We, we were talking about the various disputes and he had his phone set up to notify him whenever something uh, setting is, is was changed. And like not even a second later, it buzzed and his, um, Microphone was on. Recording. Yikes. Yeah. So it's one of those things in which, you know, people will say, oh, if you have like an international plan, you're safe from China won't hack it or China won't uh, hack your device. I'm like, seriously, you're going to really trust the nation who has set up the board's most pervasive surveillance state? Well, it's a little yeah. off topic. Uh, from the COVID thing, I suppose, but that kind of ties into how uh, like Huawei and stuff have just been banned essentially in the United States and a lot of other like Western nations for that exact reason. You know, they're citing like national security threats for exactly what you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. No, because um, you're right, Joss, it is, um, Huawei is a, um, is a threat. Um, and the United States and other, and other governments were actually right in my opinion for doing that because you have this law national security law that says the state the party state can come to you Huawei or Dulian or Senator Weibao or WeChat and request records for Josh from Josh from the United States or Senator talk 
from the United States or Brody. And by law, the Chinese Communist or by law, Huawei um, or, uh, or any other company has to comply. They have to they have to assist. So against that backdrop, what a lot of people don't really understand about that is the reason why they're bringing up the banning of Huawei, the potential banning of TikTok slash Julian, um, especially TikTok, uh, especially TikTok slash Julian, because in many ways, it is what WeChat wanted to be in terms of being one massive backdoor. Yeah, real quick, you brought up that national security law and I Again, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but as, as far as I remember, the thing with that national security law that was passed, and it was really passed when all these protests were going on with Hong Kong, right? Like that was that seemed to be a big motivation for it. But the national security law, at least as far as I could remember, applies to the entire world. So obviously the Chinese police can't come to my home here in California and pick me up and extradite me back to Beijing. But let's say they tap my phone, which is very possible, like our government does it, right? It's it's mm -hmm. a very possible thing to happen in 2022. It's not beyond the stretch of your imagination. But maybe this is a crazy scenario, but let's say, for example, I'm caught divulging some information about the high levels of the Chinese Communist Party, and I decide to travel to Fiji or maybe the Solomon Islands, which are both cozying up to the Chinese Communist Party at this very moment. What's to say that the Chinese police, national police or whatever, I can't say, hey, this guy's like in Fiji or he's in the Solomon Islands. He said this, this and that about the government, which is against our laws. Can you pick him up? And we'll put in a request to extradite him well, for breaking the national security law. The thing I always wonder about that stuff, and maybe you guys can answer this a little better than I can, but wouldn't that take like a massive amount of logistical effort to do this kind of thing? Like the amount of people that would require or the amount of like programs and servers to monitor all this data, like even, even if they're just going based off like trigger words and stuff like that, I just... That just it it almost like boggles the mind. Like it seems incomprehensible that it could actually happen, but we've also seen it happen in several situations, you know. So I guess I wonder in that situation, like, is there a priority list for like who TikTok is is monitoring, or is it more of like a like like on an individual level, or is it more of just a broad sweeping thing where they're trying to influence uh, social change or, or political change within the United States? by almost like a psyop you know what i mean like a psychological operation like that um, yeah i mean i i kind of have a feeling it's probably a little bit of both i mean they certainly want to influence the west mm -hmm. right western culture society whatever but i'm sure they also have a priority list of people that they want to tap into right like i gave the example about me but obviously like the Chinese government isn't going to care about some peon like myself, right? But they'll probably care a lot more about a congressperson or a business executive or mm. maybe um, a business exec's executive assistant, right? Well, some, like, somebody with some some pull or that has connections. You're, 
Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, on both you and Josh are right, Brody. Um, one point um, regarding the logistical effort, it actually doesn't take too much because the Chinese, the Chinese actually done this before. Um, they actually rendition, for lack of a better term, a person from Australia back to China, like drugged him, put him on the plane, and flew him out of Western Australia, back to Beijing to stand trial. Wow. They've done it before. And was was this through the overseas police stations that they have? No, that was different. This okay. one was because he was a business person who was corrupt. They, that's that was the basis. If I'm not mistaken on why they wanted him but he also was you know said some stuff that ran afoul with the chinese communist party like they always do um but you know they've kind of like oh well you you're corrupt yeah that's usually like their cop out they use yeah yeah um and so regarding extraditing someone I would be more surprised if they extradite someone from the United do that to a United States citizen than anything than anything else. Um, yeah, you, you can you can argue well they did it with Australia and and other nations the citizens of other nations like why why were we special real fast was that Go an Australian ahead. citizen or was it a Chinese citizen? I want to say he was a dual national. If I'm not mistaken okay. because he was he was he was for all intents and purposes. No, actually, no. He was a Chinese citizen living in Australia. How and did Australia react to that? They were very livid that they actually did this. They that the Chinese did this. They did their formal protest in uh, in the diplomatic sphere. But that's whenever you started seeing Australia as a whole waking up to the fact that maybe China is not our friend. But Maybe yeah. we should really care about what China says uh, or care about China. And then regarding like influence operations, um, you're talking about like a multi-pronged approach, like the United Workers Front that actually is one of the point, one of the points, one of the main points of them being is to actually influence other political parties, especially the communist parties, but more so political parties now. Um, and not only that, but also go to those businessmen, go to those uh, um, people who, who are not Congress, who are not associated with Congress, but are very friendly with Congress people or people in the parliament and people in parliament. And, you know, either wine and dine them or in the case of that one uh, senator or, or representative in California, have sex with them. Yeah, that's that's right. dude, I forgot about that. <laughs> that dude, he's not my congressman, but uh, I live in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. so he, he's a Bay Area congressman, the San Francisco Bay. He's not mine, but like he's from around here. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I knew I forgot he was that from the Bay. I mean, yeah. He she was very. If we would have put them two side by side, like I don't know, bro, you probably seen the picture of her as well. Um, but both of them actually, you'll like. Nah, man. I mean, like, there's like, you need to reevaluate, like, why she's actually talking to you. <laughs> like, 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 it's not for looks. It's for something yeah, else. He's um, 
he is not the brightest guy. I'm not a big fan of his, but that's um that's for a different time. But that's that's the other thing, like with that is it's like astronomical the amount of I mean, I'm sure we do it as well. I, I can almost guarantee we do it as well, but it's astronomical the amount of spies that get caught like living leaking data or influencing something back to China in the United States. Like our universities seem like they're riddled with them and they're in the, you know, the government like that. It's, it's extremely concerning. And obviously, you know, we, we can all agree that we're obviously in the midst of a, a large gray war with uh, China right now, but. Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely seems like uh, the universities are really rife with, um, I guess just like this intelligence activity from the Chinese government, whether it be through like actual Chinese spies or like American assets that they pay to betray their country. But um, there was also that thing with Senator Feinstein from California. Her mm-hmm. driver was a Chinese spy. I can't remember what years this guy was driving for her, but it came out within the past three years that this dude was an actual like Chinese intelligence officer. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was also that guy in, um, in New York, he was an NYPD officer. Guy was an ethnic Tibetan Mm -hmm. and he was a Marine. And at the time he was caught, he was also in the army reserves and he was in the NYPD. Um, and he was an asset for the MSS. He was reporting on New York city's like local Tibetan community. And this dude like came to the U S as a refugee using his status as an ethnic Tibetan saying like, Oh my God, you know, they tortured my parents. They tortured me. Like I have these scars, blah, 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 all that stuff. And that's how he was able to get asylum and eventually able to get, um, citizenship. Yeah. Citizenship. And it turns out like his dad is a Lieutenant Colonel, if not higher in the PLA and his brother's a PLA officer too. Yeah, and he's been spying on the community for like God knows how long. Yeah, I I forget in that instance was he actually caught by the United States or did he make it back to the mainland? No, he was caught in New York caught. City. Yeah, he, he was caught. No, um, regarding spying in China, um, um, Nicholas Euphrates, Euphrates, he actually has like an Excel spreadsheet of like all the instances where. Chinese spies were caught. And one of the things that you notice is that it fits a wide berth of people who were ethnic Chinese or like they were their ethnic Han and they came over here and the MSN, the, M- the uh, MSS talked to them into like betraying the US um, by the use of saying, by the use of blood is stronger than citizenship or strong blood, blood is stronger than um i forgot the same uh blood is stronger than land um and is that one is that aspect that they've actually been really successful with and the fact that they're using like your pride your naturalism the naturalism that exists within china or within chinese citizens who study over here in china who live and work here they'll be able to, they're able to tap into that. But then also just the mere fact that they're able to get, gather up all these spies, so-called spies who don't have any iota of former uh, spy training 
or counter intel training, anything like that, and utilize them. Because for them, quantity is a better quality. Because why are we going to send in these people when we can get so uh, some student at Texas A&M um, or UT or anywhere else to go and spy for us? There's like zero risk for us involved. Um, the ironically enough, that's actually one of the reasons why the Confucius Institute at Texas A&M was shut down because it was one of those things in which can we really trust them? Um, but then also with that, that's also another, that may have been another reason why the Shanghai, or not the Shanghai, but the Houston constant was shut down because- I forgot about that. Yeah, as someone who actually been there multiple times, been inside the building multiple times, I can say with a definitive degree of certainty that it was, it wasn't a dip, solely diplomatic post because you had people, you had someone pat you down after you enter a, a, a metal detector, they make you shut off your phones. Um, the rule applied less so to Chinese people, but more so to Westerners. Um, and um, and if they actually did see you on your phone, depending upon where you're at within the building or within the actual like um, waiting area to get your visa processed, they would tell you to turn it off or let you see the phone, in which at that point you could just turn it off. They'll kick you out, but you could turn it off. Interesting. And going going back real quick, you brought up the uh, Confucius Institute. Could you just explain what that is real quick for those that yeah. don't know? Yeah, so the Confucius Institute is, a, is an institute where people can go essentially learn Chinese uh, language, culture, more, more things about that. They've been known to set up uh, different events such as New Year, uh, Lunar New Year celebrations, mid-autumn, uh, mid-autumn festival celebrations, maybe create some more create a calligraphy program or, or uh, how to learn Chinese programs. The main issue, and they usually are associated with a university. Now, granted, if you were to look at some of those universities, you'll notice that they're very much connected to the DOD or other places where Chinese espionage efforts appointed or appointed towards. Um, but going back, um, the Chinese, uh, the, uh, the Confucius Institutes actually fall into what's called the Hanban. They, um, the, um, it's the, um, really it's the, um, abbreviation for the Office of Chinese Language Culture, uh, Language Council International. Um, pretty much that's actually is a part of the United Front. It's actually been proven that the United Front actually controls to a degree what they produce or what they can say. But it also falls under the Ministry of Ministry of Education as well. 
Um, and that actually was the reason why you had a lot of the controversies where you had the leader leadership of one uh, Confucius Institute, I want to say in Alabama, or it was in the South, in the American South, that went in and ripped apart some materials related to Tibet and say, this is will not do, you need to redo, you need to um, rewrite it to focus upon what we say, what's the uh, Chinese official version. Um, and what was really, the Confucius Institute had no, play no part in setting up the event. That was the real shocker that they went in, they said, they seen the material, they're like this, absolutely not. And complained and said, we need to rewrite this. And that's whenever people started to notice that maybe something else is going on with the uh, computer system too, institutes. Yeah, well, I know there's been a pretty big shift against Confucius Institutes in the past couple of years. And it seems like it's becoming pretty clear to our government and higher levels in like university systems that these are pretty associated with the Chinese government and a lot of intelligence activity that's happening here in the U.S. And something I did kind of want to go back to, because maybe I should have had a little, little caveat or whatever. Um, when we were talking about basically people being picked up by the Chinese government as assets, like we talked about that NYPD officer, and we talked about, you know, there's college professors that it happens to, they get large sums of money to pretty much spy on the United States and report back to the Chinese government. I mean, yeah, sure, that happens a lot, money talks, right? That's just the nature of things. But a lot of times, what you also have happening is the Chinese government will specifically target, mm -hmm. you know, ethnic Chinese people, whether they be Chinese nationals or whether they be, you know, Chinese American, especially if they have family that's still back in China. And they'll target these people and basically force them to report back certain information to their intelligence handlers or whatever you want to call them under the threat of something happening to their family. Yeah. No, um, regarding that, again, it goes back to a mixture of like blood is stronger than land or citizenship, but then also that they also have that to play. Like, mm -hmm. uh, they can either go one or two ways. Like, Hey, we have your brother or your sister on the phone right now they want to talk to you um, and they'll like say, hey, do what they say because they've arrested mom and dad and took them away. We don't know where they're at. Or, you know, they took your uh, sister, or you took your, took a relative and held them hostage essentially. Um, that actually has worked 50-50 with them because they realize that some Chinese will not go down that path, they're actually reported. There's been two instances where that actually has occurred from my, from my remembering, bringing, from my understanding. Um, 
so for them, it's more, they usually utilize that tactic to get people to come back. Um, that's where the overseas Chinese uh, police departments actually come into play. Um, certain police departments actually been known to do that. Um, um, the reason um, they've actually, I don't know why the Chinese uh, keep saying that, oh, they're just there to help Chinese people renew their licenses. I'm like, come on. I mean, like, it's no coincidence when you, you're based in a city where there's a large Chinese population that is actually has a somewhat vocal and I there's no such thing as coincidences when you're dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those overseas police stations are a very big concern. Um, and it looks like their activity is only increasing over time and not a lot is being done about it. So, well, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I'm, I'm kind of going to lead us into something else, I suppose. So yeah, go ahead. Okay. No, um, there's been some action um, against them. Uh, I know Ireland was one of the few or first nations that actually said, you need to leave. You need to shut this down. You didn't give us, you didn't let us know about this. So therefore it's illegal. You cannot do this. You need to shut it down and leave. Um, I believe they've actually did. I haven't heard anything else from the Irish in the Irish news or my contacts within Ireland that actually would know about that or have more bandwidth on it. Um, I want to say the Dutch and Italian and the Dutch and Italians actually came out and said we're in the process of shutting them down. But in the case of Italy, they don't know how many there are. They know that as of right now, they know that there's, they, they know they have the most, the second most outside of China compared, and I think Australia or like another country has like the most, like it's, you can go into any city and you're guaranteed to have like an overseas Chinese police station there. But I want to say they're in the process of shutting it down, shutting them down. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think Italy actually does have a pretty sizable Chinese population. They do. Um, um, but the reason why they've actually set up joint police, joint Chinese police, Italian patrols in Milan and other cities that has like that are really popular with Chinese tourists is so that they can help Chinese tourists uh, communicate communicate with their Italian counterparts. Now, what they forgot to mention is that also we're going to do some really shady stuff there too as well, but oh well. That's fun. Yeah, it's... So the main thing, I guess, all this makes me think about, all, the, all that it kind of leads back to is do we, being us three, I suppose, in all of our infinite wisdom, do we think that this whole end game for China is for them to become a world hegemon, uh, similar to, I guess, how the United States is? Or do we think this is kind of more of a, uh, I want to say a defensive strategy that 
would be a very offensive defensive strategy, but a defensive strategy, um, essentially just securing their uh, status in Southeast Asia or just Asia in general. You know, I guess what I'm asking is, do we think that uh, China is trying to replace the United States or that China just wants to control their regional allies and stuff like that? Um, and by doing so, they're trying to increase their economic capacity and, and influence politics in other nations and stuff like that. I mean, maybe maybe a little bit of both. Um, certainly more so the former in that, from my point of view, they want to overtake the United States as the world's reigning superpower because it creates a good defense to keep the CCP in power. It's almost necessary in, in their eyes from how I look at it. No, so I, would, I would almost argue the opposite, though, if, you know, if we look at, I guess, all the struggles that China has had in the last, I don't know, since like the 1970s, um, most of their military excursions have been pretty disastrous. Um, mm -hmm. And... They have obviously all the like immense internal struggling going on, especially more recently. Um, and then if you kind of compare that to how the United States has been with their uh, world police situation, um, like obviously at first there was like widespread support for Iraq and Afghanistan um, based off 9-11. But after a while, that turned really negative. The Vietnam War turned really negative. Um, and that and, and it's. It's caused a lot of uh, political upheaval and stuff. And so um, in a country like China, where it's a lot more unstable naturally because um, of everything that's been going on recently and all the failures of the Chinese government uh, militarily and stuff, do you think that it would actually cause for them to like take the role of world policemen? Do you actually think it would cause more issues for the CCP? I think... Regarding what their long-term plans would be, you have to understand a few things about Chinese culture um, or Chinese culture and history. China has always been, or they believe that the center of the the center of the world, like jungle, actually means middle kingdom. That's actually right. if you if you're like looking at like what the characters mean. Middle Kingdom. And it's because they believe in the dynasties of old that we are a higher celestial people than the rest of the world. We are the anointed, we are the intellectual people, the rest of the people are barbarians. Um, and so for them, it's more along the lines of them going back to that, whereas becoming something, become, them becoming it. Um, that's why uh, within um, Chinese uh, media, they actually said the Chinese dream, the Chinese rejuvenation, the great rejuvenation, especially Xi Jinping used to say that. They believe that they need to be rejuvenated as a nation. They need to get over the hundred years of, of humiliation in which that still is plays a big part in the Chinese psyche today because of them being essentially ruled over by like barbarians uh, for a hundred years. Um, there's a reason why they call it a hundred years of humiliation within China. 
1849. Uh, that's whenever the Mao uh, proclaimed a new China. Um, regarding if they want to become the ward police, they would be really reluctant to do that because they've seen how the United States had a go at it. Um, they don't want to do it, but they also understand that if they need to increase their foreign policy, they if they need to get to these wall, uh, these natural resources, that they need to at least provide the bare minimum in terms of defensive capabilities to not only get there, but to actually fight, project power. So in that regard, that's why you see them actually trying to get more bases. Um, I know the one in Djibouti was a major one because it's the first Chinese base. And not only that, they're pretty much sharing the space with the US, Japanese, um, French, and I want to say British as well. And there's been a lot of instances where the Chinese actually pointed lasers at like all the other aircraft and caused the pilots to be become blinded as a result. But but regarding but going back to the bases, you have a lot of rumors saying that they're gonna they're trying to get basing rights in the Solomons. And uh, they may have one, they may have an agreement with Cambodia at Cameron Bay, or not at Cameron Bay, but um, by the naval base there on, on the Gulf of Thailand. They may get some, and they may have, a, they may try to require something in Western and Eastern Africa, respectively, to project power in the Atlantic and more, and more so in the Indian Ocean. And then not only that, that actually is one of the bigger issues regarding the uh, Diego Garcia negotiations between the Manoutras and the UK, because Manoutras has been really cozying up to China as of late. And so for the for not only us, the United States, but the but the British, it's the question of will we still have access to Diego Garcia, but also that would the Chinese have access to the only speck of land within the Indian Ocean that can host a reasonable airstrip and naval facilities. And with their large increase in like their naval shipbuilding and stuff like that, and their modernization of like carrier platforms and stuff, that's really gonna increase their offensive capabilities even without these like worldwide bases and stuff. Um, but like you were saying, I don't think they're necessarily trying to become like world police in the sense of like how the United States was enacting regime change and stuff especially uh, considering China's policy during like the Belt and Road Initiative, where they kind of work with the government that's there. They don't um, you know, smack down these, um, these Chinese values onto these countries and stuff, kind of like how the United States does. Um, and so in, in that, I guess that kind of leads into how we want to kind of do like a, an analysis on their defensive capabilities and such. But with their increase in uh, their naval powers, their naval capacity and stuff, do you think that they're actually capable of exerting that kind of power into the rest of the world with all these bases and stuff? Or do you think it's kind of putting the um, you know dog before the leash? 
I think in time they will have the capability. There, we already witnessed it with the recent exercises that the um, aircraft carrier group that did in the Western Pacific, they actually were able to sustain operations, carry operations for, I wanna say the duration of that, of that deployment. Not only that, but you actually seen them working or operating within the second, uh, second island chain. So essentially the first island chain has been broken by the PLA and, and so they're able to operate within that. But, and so it will just take time for them to build up the capability. They've, they're projected to have maybe three to four aircraft carrier groups. Um, now I wanna say they were flat, they're flat top. They're gonna to be flat, flat tops from here on out. They're not gonna be the skip, uh, skip jump variants that the Leong and I wanna say Fujin are, mm -hmm. um, because they realize that the Soviet uh, and slash Russian uh, Navy were just completely wrong. We're going and utilizing those type of aircraft carriers. Um, and so not only that, but I would be more interested in seeing how they utilize their uh, landing ships, their amphibious landing ships. I know they're, I know they have at least one LHA that's undergoing trials or, or is close to getting commissioned, becoming commissioned. Um, but then they're also going to have like another two. So I'm kind of interested if they're going to try to create a new equivalent to that uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit so that they can just go around, um, co basically copy the Mew, uh, the Mew uh, concept. Just have them just have a, a bunch of ships um, centered around an amphibious helicopter um, ship, assault ship just wander around maybe the Mediterranean and Africa, just in case they're needed. And they'll be able to deploy a wide variety of measures or responses that day. So it'll be kind of interesting to see if they go down that route, which I would, I would think that they would be considering that they did increase their Marine Corps from like the two, from the two brigades to upwards of six now with plans to getting up to at least eight, if I'm not mistaken. And not only, not only do they have the Marine Corps brigades, but then the People's Liberation Army ground force, which is essentially like the actual army, they have mm -hmm. amphibious brigades as well, don't they? They do actually. Um, it's like how I was explaining to someone else uh, regarding amphibious, um, a potential amphibious uh, warfare or amphibious invasion of Taiwan. A lot of people will say, oh, well, it's going to be the PL, uh, the Marine Corps that's going to take the lead. I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's going to be those six brigades. That's their sole purpose in life is that they're going to be ready to take, uh, be ready to deploy um, and take those ships or take a beachhead in Taiwan if she gives them the order. Now, will the uh, will the Marine Corps have a plan? Uh, will have a place in the operation? Of course, it's not going to be. It's going to be one of the biggest operations, if not the biggest, in world history. So you may see a joint operation where some brigades, some Marine Corps brigades, will join them. But all in all, it would be a it would be 
solely a uh, the those uh, amphibious mechanized brigades. Those will be the main focus. Those will be the main effort. So, do you we'll guys? That Marine Corps is like a supporting effort. Sorry, Josh. No, no, you're good. You're good. No, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a supporting. This is going to be a supporting effort. Yeah, will they? Will that change depending upon scenario? Yes, of course. They will be the main effort in South China Sea, like we saw in where they class with both the Republic of Vietnam within Republic of Vietnam, but then also with Vietnam after that, after the uh, reunification. Um, a lot of people don't realize that is that is that both Vietnam and China actually fought um, over those islands. Um, I want to say the Woody Islands was the one where the Republic of Vietnam, where they actually booted out the Republic of Vietnam like a month before South Vietnam fell. Um, and then Vietnam and or China actually invaded two or three of the smaller islands in 1989 and 1994, respectively, and massac essentially massacred the entire garrison. Like they said that they fought to the death, but they've others within the uh, Vietnamese um, society said that, oh, well, they probably did surrender, but you know, at that time, Vietnam and China wasn't the best of friends, really wasn't the best of friends. So, um, yeah, I mean, just like on a, a quick tangent, quick question. Vietnam and China, there's a, a little bit of bad blood there, right? They fought a war. Uh, was it 79, I think? Or is it earlier than that in the late 70s? Yeah, it was late 70s. Yeah, it's 1979. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so there is some some bad blood there just based off that. They're not the best of friends. No, they've it's like how I try to it's like how I explain to people that China and Vietnam may be communist, but they're different flavors. Um, Vietnam was more is more Marxist Leninist, whereas China is more Maoist. And the reason why that war actually occurred between them is because Vietnam actually invaded Cambodia and took out the Khmer Rouge, China's Maoist allies. Okay. Um, and so they just, and so while the Chinese actually did make some lead way into it, they had to withdraw they, after declaring victory. They may have actually, they took like one or two major cities, but that's after the Vietnamese just melted way into the jungle and just did guerrilla warfare tactics. So like with Vietnam being kind of directly opposed to both the United States and China, even though I guess you could say Vietnam and the United States have kind of patched things up since the 1970s in the Vietnam War, um, yeah. with their, them being pretty much at odds with both of us, um, It'll be very interesting, I think, to see where they're going to fall when it comes down to everybody kind of picking sides. I know most countries in Asia are kind of like towing the line, trying to like stay on in the middle, uh, with the exception of obviously like Japan 
South Korea and Australia and stuff, obviously they've picked sides. Um, but with Vietnam, they're, they're kind of, because they have territorial disputes with China, mm-hmm. they're also in a, like a precarious position to where like they're very strategic. They're surrounded by enemies on all sides and they're not really friends with anyone. Well, I wouldn't say that the relationship between the United States and Vietnam is unfriendly. It's more along the lines of an enemy, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. They go ahead. I I just mean like optics wise, I have a very hard time ever seeing the United States allying with a openly communist country. It, It would just totally defeat the purpose of the last like hundred years, essentially. Even if, you know, in, in practice and in theory that, you know, we don't, that's not actually the case and all that stuff. Um, but just, I guess, like optics wise, I don't see the United States valuing that alliance openly. You know what I mean? No, no, I, I agree. No, no, I agree with your point, Joss, but it's not that they're, it's not that they will willingly open ally with themselves with, uh, with Vietnam. It's more along the lines of them giving weapons. And their and other armaments to them to say like you hate the Chinese as much as we do, or if not more, here you go. Here's our harpoon missile missiles. If you get into a fight with them, you can use them in however way you wished. But not only that, you see Vietnam actually hosting a defense expo that actually brought in a whole an entire menagerie of defense contractors from across the world. Um, to include the French, which is surprising to me because I thought if they would still hate the French, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, Vietnam is is very interesting to look at. And the relations between Vietnam and the United States have like really improved a lot since 1975. And it's very interesting to see. I think a lot of people, when they think about Vietnam, they kind of just forget that Vietnam's actually still a socialist nation yeah so it's like it's weird right because it's a it's a big tourist spot um it's just like you don't you don't really hear bad things about vietnam anymore no i mean um that's actually is one of the more interesting facts because they've actually opened up their economy like china but to a lesser degree um they do allow innovation they do allow um private uh private uh company exists but they still have they still maintain a higher degree of control over it mm-hmm. um less so than china or less so than china um and and it's very interesting because like if anyone that would have actually transitioned to a market econ- a full-on market economy would be vietnam as opposed to china <laughs> yeah because yeah, because Mao is Mao hated the concept of capitalism with a passion. Um, he that's actually one of the central tenements of the economic policies of Maoism that the state has to control everything. People can get with the program, or you get a bullet to the head. Either or. Yeah, and it's really kind of necessary, at least in the CCP, uh, CCP's eyes, to maintain control. 
Right. I mean, human beings love power, you know, at the very simplest way to put things, human beings love power. And how do you retain that power? Right. You get control of things. Yeah. No, like regarding, regarding that, you kind of see that more so with Xi Jinping because he came in, he became the head of the CCP at a time when you had rampant corruption. Um, I want to say he came in two years after the scandal of a PLA general whose son crashed and died in his new Lambo with like two Chinese models um, emerged on Chinese social media. And everyone was like wondering, well, how can a PLA general have that? Yeah. Not only that, um, you still have questions about how she is able to send his daughter, was able to send his daughter to Harvard on a $36,000 USD salary. So you have that. So she's not really clean corruption-wise as well. Just that rules with thee, not for me and my friends. Yeah, I mean, from what... From what I can see, I actually did a paper on G um, last semester, like comparing him and Mao and this whole anti-corruption thing. Like that was his big thing when he first came into power. Well, I guess it is still his big thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it, it really seems like the whole anti-corruption thing, as it usually goes in these sorts of authoritarian countries, was a cover for purging the other factions of the communist party it started like that like um it started as a holistic with a good intentions um xi jinping actually had a speech that compared that stated that we need to get rid of the corruption because corruption is the greatest threat to the chinese communist party's continued rule however like everything that she utilizes also had a nefarious rule or had a nefarious uh, means to it as well. He figured out that I can actually get rid of people who would, who may not be so amenable to what I want with corruption charges. This is like how Joss said, like corruption always, corruption charges always seem to be their cop out. Well, yeah, it's because they're all corrupt. Like, I don't, on the entire roster of the Chinese Communist Party, you would not hit anyone who is not corrupt, to some degree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And going back a little bit, we were talking about Taiwan, and I guess if you guys want, we could get into this first question about uh, China invading Taiwan. But one of my followers asked this, uh, there's this guy out there named Ford Observer, and I guess he does like these intelligence analysis things, and he put out a 30-day warning for the Chinese invasion of Taiwan. As in like 30 days from today? Yeah, 30, well, 30 days from when it was published. He said that 
he was saying that the the KMT met with Beijing so that the KMT would would eventually become in the get into power once they invade. And I'm like, that's not remotely true. Um, and the KMT actually came into power because, or actually won the elections because they didn't really the the, the Taiwanese didn't really like their. I want to say didn't like how the DDP was confronting China, which is completely wrong. Um, the DDP failed because um, I forgot her name. Um, didn't really have an effective campaign strategy. And that's uh, the current president? Yeah, the current president. Yeah, her um, name her name escapes me too. Yeah, I, I, I have her, I see her, but I just don't know the name. I keep forgetting her name. Yeah. And she said, and he said like, yeah, the KMT won all the district, or won all the, uh, the district they have because they, the Taiwanese were used for lack of a better term, whereas didn't like how they were confronting China, which is wrong. They lost because they didn't have an effective strategy, but then also because they didn't really work towards saying that, hey, we know we kind of messed up on zero code on, on our COVID policies, but at least, you know, we've saw the error or ways and let y'all have your freedoms back. Um, and, but they just lost all those seats. Um, the irony of it all is that Chiang Kai-shek's grandson, I wanna say he's the mayor, mayor of Taipei now. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I'm like, wow. Yeah, it's funny. And um, so for, sorry, um, sorry to interrupt. For no. those I don't know the KMT, it's the Kuomintang. I don't know if I pronounce that like even relatively correct, but <laughs> probably not. But no, you, um, you oh, thanks, appreciate it. It's uh, that's the political party that ruled over the Republic of China. Like they were the the Chinese Republicans, right? And they were the the other player in the Chinese Civil War that opposed the Communists under Mao Zedong, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the Civil War, the leadership that was left of the KMT that hadn't been you know schwacked or surrendered fled to Taiwan established the Republic of China mm -hmm. as we know it today and the KMT is still a political party to this day yeah um yeah the KMT has a really interesting history especially with the Sheck family um they played a there are major players within that party even to this day, as you can probably tell. Um, yeah. Uh, his uh, Ken, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's son actually allowed, began a transition to democracy within Taiwan. Um, again, I guess they had the watershed moment of like, we need to democratize or face extinction. Whereas in China, Deng Xiaoping seen the same thing, but we need to open up the market. Yeah. We need to open up or we face extinction. Yeah, just another quick note, just because the KMT were the Chinese Republicans, quote unquote, like Chiang Kai-shek was still very much a dictator, even if he wasn't a communist, but like he was not, uh, he was not this, you know, like 
pillar of democracy <laughs> of, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um, ironically enough, he did actually believe a large part of Ma uh, Marxist Leninist doctrine. The KMT was originally a, s a socialist party. Well, it's interesting because, um, again, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think within the KMT in the early days, you had like different kind of factions. I think there was more like right wing mm -hmm. factions and there was like left wing factions. And this like goes back to the time where I can't remember like the name of this era or you know, the move that like melded these two parties together, but you had like the Communist Party of China was like embedded in with the KMT within like the more left-wing factions and they worked together. Um, I think within the first era to like defeat these Chinese like warlords mm. in the early 1900s. And then there was like this second era of cooperation where they fought against the Japanese. I could be wrong. No, you, you're correct. Um, they had a era of mutual cooperation. Actually, the Kemerton and CCP actually were united at one point. Um, they actually did fight against the warlords and the Bayabon regime. Um, the uh, the successor to the Qing dynasty. Um, but then you had Xi Jinping, uh, not Xi Jinping, but um. Kim Jong-shek actually come in and like, okay, the CCP are too much of a threat. We're going to kill them all. And that's yeah. when you see them like, that's when you actually see them actually try to do that. That's actually how the long march actually occurred. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what kicked off the whole civil war, right? Because I know Mao Zedong, he was, he was a member of the Communist Party, sure. But again, like as part of that whole uh cooperation with the KMT and I think he was actually a pretty big figure in the KMT at least as far as communists go like he, he definitely had some pull from my understanding He wasn't the biggest person within the KMT or within the Communist Party. He was one of the biggest. He was a major player, but he was he the major player? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. That only came upon came that only came that only occurred during and after the Long March when Mao Zedong took out the rest of the leadership via killing or otherwise aligning himself political centrifuge, if you will. To take those out, to take out the other people, or you seen as a threat. Got it. Got it. Uh, going back to Mr. Forward Observer here, was that was that the only reasoning he used? Was this supposed meeting between the KMT and Beijing? He used a lot of things. Did I, that even? I I can't imagine that actually happened. The meeting between that video, like ninety percent of it was about like Ukraine and Russia. It looked like. Yeah, like um, you have to go to the latter half of it, like I want to say halfway. Um, yeah, he he didn't do his research. I think that's that, and he like just said a lot of outdated stuff. If he did, um, 
but yeah, the KMT and Beijing and the, the CCP are actually amenable to two parties and two parties or two systems, one party. Um, if it had to come down to it, if they had to choose between invasion, total subjugation, or Hong Kong or pre uh, pre two thousand nineteen Hong Kong, they would choose that one. Um, the DDP and I want to say another party that's is a minor player in Taiwanese politics. They used to the DDP actually used to come out and say we want independence. We don't consider ourselves Chinese. Our our uh, our parents would uh, consider ourselves Chinese, but we don't. We're Taiwanese, and which that was another thing that I kind of had issue with with the video and the fact that he said that the Taiwanese will not fight. Um, that's wrong. The Taiwanese will fight. They've actually took Ukraine the Ukraine lesson and said we and it's the the population actually said like we need to at least know how to use basic infantry tactics. And that's why you see these increases in establishments in people learning how to um, how to use infantry weapons via airsoft. Um, gun ownership is really restrictive within Taiwan. Um, I want to say the only ones that can that are able to own a uh, own a firearm outright are the minority Aboriginal tribes that are located on the western part of the island and certain individuals who would need it, like farmers and such. But um, but yeah, they you've seen this dramatic increase in them actually going to get, know how to use a rifle, know how to use firearms, basic infantry tactics, basic uh, trauma care. You see all these increases, but then also with that, you see the people who are finally waking up and realizing that maybe time, uh, maybe China is not our friend. Maybe China will actually invade. And I think the the missile exercises that uh, that uh, China did, the partial blockade, was the final nail in the coffin. And the fact that people needed to wake up that we either need to fight for our island, fight, fight for our right to exist versus, um, versus extinction, if you will. Yeah, I, I don't know pretty much anything about Taiwanese society, but I think it's, um, yeah, you shouldn't really make the assumption that a group of people aren't going to fight if their country, you know, gets invaded. Um, yeah. I mean, that's what that's what the Russians thought about Ukraine, right? I'm not trying to get into the whole like Ukraine thing for two hours, but like, you know, it's a good example right there within the past year that we could easily look back to. It's pretty clear that the Taiwanese like would defend their land if it was invaded. Why? Why would they not? You know, you'd have to give you a pretty good reason with some evidence as to why they wouldn't. They very clearly take their defense seriously, more mm -hmm. seriously than they have in the past. And that's not to say that they never took their defense seriously. But, I mean, their military did have a lot of outdated equipment, right? And their training standards weren't great. Um, their reserves weren't really 
in the best place that they could have been. But there, it does appear to me, at least, that they are trying to modernize their military. They are modernizing their training standards. They want to train with the U.S. and with other Western militaries. Not to say that um, that's going to happen anytime soon for whatever reason. Our, our government's just kind of weird about that. But they do seem motivated to defend their land. And there have been Taiwanese men, not a lot of them, but some of them that have, like, gone to Ukraine and volunteer to fight so they could bring back their combat experience to Taiwan mm-hmm. and, you know, basically train other Taiwanese men how to defend their country. Again, it's not a lot, but that is like, it's, it's kind of a cool thing nothing. to see. Yeah, it's better than nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like, that's the reason why you see the Taiwanese actually buying the equipment that they have, that they're buying now. Um, they realize that um, if the Chinese did, do invade, they need to either make any invasion so costly that they would not do it, or make it so costly that they can't do it a second time. Granted, they can only do it, as of right now, they can only do it once, but if Taiwan, and it looks like they're trying to move towards that, if Taiwan actually plays the cards right and actually acquire the necessary equipment, they could make they can make the PLA pay a heavy price for even crossing the median line. Will they lose Kinmen and uh, Pingho? Of course. Uh, Kinmen is like um, and they're not they have no illusion of them being able to keep the islands like they did in the 1950s. Um, Pingho um, since this is in the middle, the halfway point between Taiwan and, and China, the Chinese know that they were gonna have to, they're going to have to take out the island. They can't keep it standing. It's like an unsinkable military base. Even then, it appears that in the event Taiwan is invaded, they probably won't be alone. It looks like we'll come to their aid in some capacity will at the very least probably provide them with a decent amount of military equipment but even like president biden has said like u.s troops will defend taiwan now i know the white house has kind of tried to like walk that back a little bit but i don't know man the president's word counts for something and he said that multiple times right (laughs) and it doesn't to a certain extent it doesn't even really matter if the white house walks that back because the Chinese government doesn't care that the White House tried to walk it back. They care that the president of the United States said that American troops will defend Taiwan. That's not really something you could just take back, especially yeah, I mean, when you say it multiple times. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things in which I kind of compare it to a Freudian slip. I mean, China is not dumb in that aspect. She's not stupid. They know the Taiwanese or they know the um, the U.S. will come defend uh, Taiwan in some capacity if they do decide to invade. Um, that's actually one of the reasons why you see things such as the anti-ship ballistic missile and like the hyper hypersonic missiles being developed because to create that standoff distance to where they can the PLA can make the U.S. think twice as to if they want to succeed or they want to invade or help uh, Taiwan. Um, 
again, like their rationale is that would you want to race an acre of an acre of U.S. foreign policy, if you will, the aircraft carriers, just to intercede in Taiwan? Um, what they consider an eternal question, which to me is a kind of a joke because that was one of the myths that always that was always a myth for the CCP that they want to retake Taiwan, which in fact, it was never under Chinese control. You can make the argument that the Ming had some control over it whenever they, whenever the, the one of their warlords decided to come and kick out the Dutch and Spanish colonists. But other than that, they were just a backwater until, until uh, Japan came in and uh, took it over during the first uh, Sino, uh, Sino uh, Japanese war. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why you don't really see bad blood between the Taiwanese and Japanese. Um, they actually have a really good relationship. Yep, and that is perfect segue because it appears that Taiwan doesn't only have the US in their corner, but they might also have Japan as well and it looks like japan is making some you know fairly notable moves in their defense policy um to beef up their posture in the pacific yeah Can you uh talk about that a little bit yeah so last week let me see no two weeks ago um japan actually released their first national defense strategy national security strategy in their long-term budget plan. The first, uh, one of the most significant ones was the NDS. That was the first time they ever uh, released it in 10 years. They did, they released one in 10 years. Um, but within that one, the most significant of the approaches or of the, uh, of their, uh, yeah, the approaches was they're wanting a counter-strike capability. Now, I want to highlight that it's a counter strike, not a first strike. And that's how they're able to actually get it, how, how they're planning to actually, how, how they actually align it to a constitution. You gotta understand, it's a policy change, not a constitutional change. Um, they're able to get it um, because for them, it will be a type of missile defense capability or used to enhance it. So they'll be able to strike the military bases either before if they have good enough indications that they're going to strike, if that base is going to conduct a strike against Chinese um, assets or American assets, if you will, in the case of Okinawa or mainland Japan, or if they was if they were attacked and they need to strike back to prevent further attacks from happening. And then with that, it needs to have the minimum force necessary to totally destroy or disrupt any potential uh, future attacks. Um, and that's how they're actually integrating that. They're planning on integrating not only the tomahawk capability, the, tom the tomahawks that are planning on developing their own further down the line, their own indigenous designs to include hypersonic vehicles. So it will be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. And, but not only that, 
in the NDS, but and also the budget, you actually see them laying down the groundwork for the logistical footprint um, or the logistical realignment from the north, where which was a legacy of the Cold War, where they where they had to put all the put the majority of their forces to face off against the potential invasion from the Soviet Union to the Southwest, in which you now see them to establishing munitions depots, warehouse, logistical warehouses, the new division equivalent, the new division that's going to be that's going to be stood up in Okinawa um, may, within the next few years. You actually see this. You, that, one, the Chinese would love to take over the Sankaku Islands. They would love to take them over. They would love to, they would love nothing more than to have like Chinese ships uh, go in and try to retake them and then destroy them. It would be a, pop a propaganda coup for them. Um, but not only that, but culturally and historically, it would be them writing a historical wrong. In, in regards to the first and second uh, Sino-Japanese wars. Um, but not, not only that, they know, the Chinese also know that, and they've actually did, did uh, one of their missiles, one or two of their missiles actually did land in Japanese territorial waters. Because a lot of people don't realize this, but the, um, the Nisei Islands, say, I forget the name of the island. That is the closest island to Taiwan that is considered Japanese territory. And you can see that, and you can see Taiwan in the distance on a clear day. And a lot of people think or suspect that those missile strikes or the, those accidental missile landing, those missiles accidentally landing within Chinese or Japanese territorial waters wasn't an accident. It was Xi Jinping sending a message to the Japanese, like, don't get involved or this might happen. And now you see the Japanese actually installing, put, uh, planning to base a air defense, a missile defense unit there. So it's kind of interesting to see the buildup after that, after the uh, missile, after the missile strikes. Interesting. And shifting to another area in the region, one of the questions we got was, do we believe that North Korea would invade South Korea if China decides to invade Taiwan? I, they wouldn't invade. They would try to ratchet up tensions. Um, I don't really see how that would directly benefit Kim Jong-un's regime because they know any invasion of, the, of South Korea would be a failure because all their equipment is massively outdated. But not only that, just they just don't have the logistical capability to do it. And they know the rocks would invade. You see, if I not, think, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. 
see, I think it's it's hard to kind of judge this based off the fact that we don't really have a lot of neutral data on what the North Korean military is like. Um, you know, if we're going based off of like purely Western sources, then it would be that, you know, the North Koreans are extremely malnourished. They don't even have enough ammo to practice with, that kind of stuff. And, you know, whether or not that's true, I think it's kind of obvious that North Korea, as you were saying, is wholly outdated and doesn't have the capability to invade South Korea. Um, but I also think, you know, kind of in like a like back in the 1950s, if China were to uh, directly engage in the conflict as well um, with North Korea, then I think they would probably go for it. But as you were saying, like Kim Jong-un doesn't really have the logistics to control both countries, especially a country that's used to being free and open and uh, very liberalized like South Korea, um, especially when you consider the kind of gap that is being created in their two cultures. Like they're, even though they are still Korea, there's, they're becoming two very different countries, two very you know distinct countries from one another. And I just don't think uh, that's worth the hassle for North Korea. But on the other hand, I wonder how much of a choice they would have if China really were to engage in some sort of military conflict. I think North Korea would kind of be forced to tag along regardless, um, just because they're China's really only ally, and China is their only real ally. And so, you know, not being involved would kind of leave them high and dry in a, in a very delicate situation. I think you're right in the fact that they may not invade, but they will do something to ratchet up the tensions to where like the second infantry division and all the assets that are within South Korea has to stay there. But I don't see them invading. I don't see really any scenario where they invade uh, South Korea where that would be, where they would succeed. I mean, the technological, the yeah. uh, the technological um, advancements alone on just solely uh, with the China, uh, with the Korean military are significantly larger than the North Korean military. And like Not only that, but South Korea, I mean, obviously they lean far more pro-United States than they do pro-China, but they don't exactly have negative relations with China. Mm -hmm. Like there are still some like neutral grounds they find and they have a lot of like economic dealings and stuff like that and so you know south korea is kind of playing the fence there and so i don't think especially because of like the economic and military um not so much military prowess but like their military innovation um you know how those their industry is and stuff like that i don't think china would want to turn them into an enemy per se especially when they would be in you know in the event of invading taiwan going toe-to-toe -to -toe with most of NATO and stuff like that. No, it, they wouldn't. I mean, it would have to be, China would actually invade South Korea or assist North Korea in an invasion of South Korea under a very specific circumstances. And mm -hmm. I would say it would be whenever the China, if they are bogged down, um, in a Taiwan in a Taiwan invasion, like this China.
comparison to their equivalent of Anzio, where they're just confined to the beachhead being slaughtered by a combined force of Taiwanese, American, Chinese, Australian, Filipino, and sort of other allies too, um, just being annihilated. And so they would need a second front to open up just to relieve the pressure. And so I think that would be the only time when China would actually assist North Korea because they know that if North Korea were to fall, that means them, they'll have a South Korea who's not, a, who's an ally of the United States, or at least in the eyes of China, right there on their doorstep. And they kind of don't want, they don't want that at all. Like that's one of the reasons why they even invaded and why they assisted North Korea in during the Korean War because they couldn't, that was a red line for them to have a South Korean, to have a democratic South Korea who's a staunch US ally on their doorstep. Especially yeah. when you consider the fact that South Korea is way more militarily advanced than Taiwan is. You know, like Taiwan has, I think, like four submarines and two of which are still like World War II era submarines, yeah. that kind of stuff. Like as compared to South Korea, which I think is fielding like F-35s and, you know, very modernized equipment and stuff like that. I mean, they kind of, in some aspects, they lead like the arms development in Asia, South mm -hmm. Korea does. Yeah, I mean, not only are they very advanced, but now they're becoming a defense exporter too. Exactly. Like Poland yeah. is buying their equipment and other mm -hmm. countries are as well. So they're definitely a force to be reckoned with. And I yeah. guess my answer would be, um, I would agree with you guys that a North Korean invasion into the South would probably come from the nudging of China. And I do not see that happening unless a conflict between China and Taiwan just went so horrendously bad for China that right. they would have to open up a second front, like you were saying, so, you know, um, spare any sort of nudging from China and North Korea just, you know, tried to take advantage of the situation on their own. I don't see that happening unless some sort of event happened within South Korea that just like pretty much overnight made them such a weak target, just ready to be invaded which you know obviously the probability of that happening is incredibly low yeah so that's my answer an alternative follow-up question actually that i think would be even more of an interesting question would be do you guys think that the united states and south korea would be willing to actually themselves open up a second uh, front in the korean peninsula themselves like by pushing into North Korea or China from the Korean Peninsula to kind of ease tensions in Taiwan and stuff like that? That's a good question. Yeah. I guess for me, it would really depend on how well we would do in a war against China. Um, and if we really, you know, think like the juice is kind of worth the squeeze as far as invading North Korea goes. And I think we might try a little bit of diplomacy first. I mean, like nothing crazy, but maybe we'll give Kim Jong-un a chance. Like, dude, 
China's done. You could yeah. end. You could end this now, and it doesn't have to get any crazier from here. And just squash it and be done with it. But if you don't want to take that option, then we're gonna have some fun. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I guess I, I could see that happening again. The probability of all this happening is kind of low, but in the event that we open up a front against North Korea, like I, there'd be a little bit of diplomacy first, I imagine. Um, but then we'd also have to take like their nuclear arsenal into account because that is something we have to think about now. Yeah, like it's it's absolutely. nothing to the you know tune of Russia or China, but once a country has a nuke, like you can't not think about it. Yeah, and again, like is a juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, I mean, no, I agree. It's one of those things in which it uh, they're going to have to. The Chinese, uh, the the U.S. and South Korean leadership would have their governments would have to come together and agree that uh, we need to invade uh, China or we need to invade North Korea because or we need to go into North Korea because of X Y Z. Um, of it being like a preemptive invasion, I I don't think so. That's actually one of the reasons why or one of the main facets of North Korean propaganda is the fact that they believe that the South Korean puppets with their Yankee uh, masters would just, just loved or just gonna, just waiting to enter North Korea and rape the women, kill the children, execute the men and give them capitalism um, and all of its ills. Um, um, it's one of those things in which it will be a total mobilization of the North Korean populace on a level not seen since World War II um, with the Japanese population. They've, where you have everyone fighting because yeah, they may not like Kim Jong-un or they know like his regime is not the best. They've been so uh, conditioned to fight against the South Koreans and Americans that they're gonna fight. Yeah, and one, one thing to think about on the other side is South Korea has so many civilians that live within artillery range from North Korea. Yeah. Like that is absolutely something their government would have to take into account. Like in the events of a war, a reignited war between the two nations, like civilian casualties on both sides would be just like astronomically high. Yeah. No, I agree. This no, I, I agree. Like you, during the first invasion, hours of invasion, you're probably looking at the destruction of Seoul and that the entire metropolitan area from artillery, rockets. Maybe they, maybe the regime would use like chemical weapons and other uh, WMDs. Um, again, it's they know like any if the invasion fails. Any potential invasion fails, then the regime's toast. So, for them, the juice, they have to go all in. So, yeah, and Seoul is such a big financial hub for that country, and and really for that part of the world. Like, you know, if the if the war didn't end quickly, um, they would absolutely take a hit on that because Seoul would get pretty messed up. And that's not to say South Korea wouldn't come up 
on top because I think they absolutely would, but it goes back to is the juice worth a squeeze? Excuse me. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it would be like that for both sides, actually, because South Korea would be if they do succeed in invading North Korea and like toppling the regime, you have to understand is they now have to face a German style reunification in which it will be significantly different for them because the North Korean infrastructure is just non-existent in some places. It's been totally degraded. Not only that, but you have X million of people who would just be running towards the South across the former DMZ just to get away, just to be able to get food, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be the like the biggest cluster mm-hmm. in you know probably the past decade plus if that were to happen. Yeah. So I guess we could uh, do this one last point, and then we could kind of start to close it out. But somebody asked if we could do a summary on China's. SSBN fleet. And for those who don't know, that's like a nuclear powered ballistic missile submarine. So, so go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. So, I know recently, um, like literally last month, um, some major reports were released about their new um, submarine capabilities. The, um, uh, what is it? The, it's it's the type something. Um, they're all the type something. But anyways, um, I guess the the fact that they're going to have what seventy six boats by twenty thirty. Um, their extremely uh, high tech ones are ported like right outside Taiwan. Um, the fact that they've been supposedly sailing around Hawaii and stuff like that. The fact that the United States feels they're such a uh, strategic asset that they're being like monitored at all costs and stuff, I think really goes to show how worried we are about their uh, sub capabilities, especially because China has like an unprecedented uh, ability to just make boats. Um, They now, I mean, obviously they have the largest surface fleet now in the world. Uh, Granted, most of those are made up of like brown water ships and stuff like that. But still, their submarine fleet is like massive, and the fact that they're now putting like ICBMs and stuff in them, um, in their like brand new ones, is seriously concerning. Um, especially when you consider the fact that a lot of their surface fleet, and so probably by at like perfectly knocking out our uh, carrier groups, like through like swarm attacks almost with their. Um, their missiles and stuff like that. Um, what are they? Type twenty five. They're uh, they're basically they're like small uh, cruisers or whatever. That they're all armed with. I think six or nine um, anti ship ballistic missiles. Mm-hmm. I think coupling that with their submarine capabilities. Um, obviously, they want to be able to strike Taiwan before even landing there, of course. But I think they also want to be able to strike further locations along the island chain and stuff without actually having to take one of their very new, very vulnerable carrier groups out there, especially because if they can keep our carrier groups at bay, 
and, and essentially the rest of NATO at bay, they can essentially blockade Taiwan and kind of defeat it without even having to step foot on the, on, you know, the country of Taiwan. No, I agree. I mean, their SS, but regarding their SSBNs, they're more along their uh, nuclear triad. Um, they, as of right now, they have like four type 094 gen class and then two of the more modern or the more modified or the more newer type 94 A's. Um, and the irony of, of that one is the uh, type 94 A's came about, or at least those two came about because they had so many issues with the type 94s. Like um, there's been a lot of um, hearsay, if you will, that um, the Russian and American navies could just, they always knew where they were because they were just so loud. And so the, the A's were an attempt for them to actually try to mitigate that one. Um, right now, China's planning on um, and actually are building a, a newer type of sub, newer class of sub, SSBN. Um, the type 096 Tang class, they're planning on bringing eight online of those. Um, in addition to that, those ships or those submarines may actually be armed with the JL TAC-3 uh, submarine launched missiles. Um, those will be the one, those are the missiles that will be uh, carrying the nuclear warheads. Um, and if they do, and they, and if they are successful at bringing those online, they would have a true nuclear triad capability, a global nuclear triad capability. Whereas as of right now, they may be able to strike um, the regional, the region of the Asia Pacific region to include Alaska, some sites in Alaska and Hawaii and Australia and New Zealand. If they want to strike um, the continental US with a nuclear, with a JL2, the current um, SL, uh, uh, SLBM, they would have to get as close as Hawaii actually to be able to successfully launch it. So what do we think the end state of their submarine fleet is? Do they have a specific number they want to grow to or? So actually, I because I kind of drew a blank on the, uh, the type of submarine and stuff it was when I was, I was talking, I looked it up by, um, Oh, now I gotta find it in the article. Um, it says um, that is according to the Congressional Research Service. Um, most of which are going to be relatively brand new. Um, the one I was I was speaking on uh, earlier was the Type uh, Thirty Nine, which is the one that's deployed like right near Taiwan. Um, I think personally, they're less concerned with um, having like nuclear worldwide strike capabilities on their submarines and more tuning them towards like an actual naval blockade or, um, you know, like anti-fleet capabilities on their, the, their submarines to kind of um, 
I guess, act as like a long range deterrent um, instead of actually being like a, a nuclear force. Interesting. Sano, what do you think? No, I, I disagree. I mean, they would like to have like a like a a triad because they know that if they because they know they would need it like a second strike capability. That's what essentially all SSBNs are like second strike capability. So just in case that they do get if so if they do get nuked, they have a means to launch a counterattack. Um, regarding them putting on putting nuclear weapons on other subs i i don't really see them doing that unless they've reached a point to where they feel as if they need it and they probably do have scenarios built out like specific protocols procedures that says if endpoint is reached here deploy nuclear tip uh, cruise missile but under circum under normal circumstances i don't really see them doing that because they know the calculus for a mishap is really high just like we've seen in the bay of pigs whenever that one soviet submarine captain actually i want to say he disobeyed orders he did launch, yeah yeah he he disobeyed orders to launch a nuclear tip uh, torpedo at the U.S. fleet because he knew that would mean nuclear war. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, he was the he was the captain of the submarine, but I think he had a senior officer on there, probably some sort of admiral, and the orders that they were given from Moscow was if you lose contact with the fleet just assume that the Americans have launched your nukes, so you launch your nukes too if you lose contact for like a certain period of time. And so that happened. Um, and then the senior officer on board basically gave that captain the order, like, what are you doing? Launch your nukes. And the captain refused. Yeah. I want to say it was a commissar, actually. Um, oh, he, you're yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I Because... Um, this is also another thing about Chinese um, communist, uh, the commissars in the Chinese military. Um, they actually do wield the same degree, if not more influence, like that commissar did. Yeah, and so for those who don't know what a commissar is, that's a political officer in the military. And especially like, I, I don't know if non-communist nations have them, maybe. But especially with communist nations, like they wield a lot of power because they're really like the main conduit back to the country's ruling communist party. Like they're the ones that really drive um, policy and high level orders and stuff like that. I want to say China, uh, not China, but Russia does. It's not exact same but it's more along the lines of you will do this for the fatherland or motherland or else we'll shoot you or i want to say or i want to say that that's interesting yeah because i remember um reading something 
when I was researching for another paper I was writing that that was one of the things, lessons learned that the Chinese took, may have taken, is the fact that they're, that those type of political officers in the Russian military weren't really effective. Got it, got it. So uh, reading here, um, going back a little bit, it says, uh, according to Admiral Sam Paparo, the head of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, uh, China's six Jin-class submarines are now equipped with JL-3 intercontinental ballistic missiles. And according to the Congressional Research Service, um, the uh, JL-3 has a range of uh, approximately 10,000 kilometers or 6,200 miles, which obviously puts it well in range of you know, the United States and all sorts of stuff like that. Mm. You know, the East Coast and all that. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. cool. Yeah. All right, boys. Well, I really don't know anything about submarines, so I was just interested to hear your answers. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I'm, I, I I'm just here. I don't know too much about the submarines either, but uh, I briefly looked it up and I was like, oh, okay, now I'm an expert. I I had the um, dubious honor of one actually going aboard a Han class. Uh, sub, uh, submarine. They're one of the first uh, SSBNs ever built. Um, not only that, but afterward, being able to take a class, take several classes with a former chief, uh, naval chief who was a boomer officer, who was a boomer. He 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 did his he did most of his um, time in the navy aboard SSBNs. And so he taught me a lot about submarines that I really didn't need to know. That sounds pretty cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it was cool at some at um, it was kind of cool, but some of the more like personal things that he that they go through, I was like, I really like wow, like y'all like y'all suffered. <laughs> <laughs> wow, like. Like I always knew, like submariners were weird. I just didn't know, like they were weird because they just were in a can, essentially a tin can for like months on end without surfacing and breathing the same air. Like, yeah, that, that would make people weird too. I'm sure, dude. It's a it's such a weird experience to be in. One of my friends just joined the Navy. He's like 24 years old too. Right. So he just joined the Navy. He did a six year contract and um, he's like uh, some sort of submarine or he will be some sort of like submarine intelligence or something like that. So I'm interested to see like what he's like when he's like actually like comes back from some deployments. Cause I know how he is like now as like a normal person, but I'll see how he ends up in six years. Yeah, this after the after he gets done with the boomer, uh, after he gets done with the subs. Yeah, <laughs> that should be interesting. Yeah, but boys, um, I think we could get ready to close it out here. I still owe Mister Lethal my contribution. <laughs> Me as well. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. we all do. I actually seen. I don't know if you emailed him yours, but yeah, he's always kind of waiting on me. Poor guy. <laughs> Yeah, he he kind of like um yeah, I'm getting 
I have the conclusion to run on mine, which I'd need to rewrite it because apparently it's not good enough. So it's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> this this week was my my first week ever having Europe. And oh wow. It made me realize how absolutely boring Europe is. <laughs> I mean, Usually I did I did South America, Africa, or East Asia. And there's always seemingly something going on there. Yeah. And in Europe, it's like Ukraine, 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 Ukraine. I mean, there's a little bit of Serbia, but it's like just Ukraine. Yeah. I know. I did Europe one time. I did Europe. I did. Obviously, I did Ukraine, but I was like, I need fucking hear another story. So I wrote about these like three Russian spies that um, got caught visiting some like old Albanian like arms factory or something like that. And it was like, it was an interesting like a news story for me to read but it's like it's not really much it's like a two minute read right and there's just not much to go off of i'm like fuck like i need something to write about right yeah so i guess that's it yeah there, there's i been, tried there's to been, make it as interesting yeah. as i could but i've had so many situations like that where like i've got like you know one or two good articles out on something big and then there's just a bunch of like really small stuff so i'll be like okay here's a brief synopsis of like 30 different things happening and write like a sentence for each and turn that into an article somehow but yeah it's 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 really hard when everything's stale in a certain region yeah i hear that and then i will let you guys use this time to uh shout out your pages or any companies or organizations or anything like that um so you know i'll let you go first if you have anything yeah so um you can follow me at cinotalk for any more uh, topics um i may actually do like a queue uh uh Bodhi, you probably actually inspired me to actually do a q a on my page right now just so i can see what people want to see on the page um but no like um dude who's that who's that one fucking CIA officer if you guys know who I'm talking about I think like Northern Provision sent one of his things in the group chat at one point somebody did and um yeah the guy was just like completely talking out of his oh, ass I remember when we were talking about this it yeah was... who is that guy man like what, what's his name because I know like a couple of them like um... I don't know I don't know I can't remember I'm gonna have to scroll back, but he he was like talking out of his ass about the war in Ukraine and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, oh, I remember that. Um, this happened recently, correct or no? Yeah, it was like within the past like a week before week Christmas, so, I think, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, um, that he he wasn't the CIA actually. He was um, if it's the same person, um, actually, let me look him up. He's He's a part of the Mozart. He he founded the uh, Mozart Group. Andrew Mil Milborn, Andy Milborn. Yeah, he, he, yeah. M I L B U R N. Interesting. Yeah, it's like, like he came out saying that like. If this is the same person, he came out saying that, oh, well, China, uh, Ukraine's this rule is so corrupt. Um, he was just saying a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm like, but you save people. You actually are like out there on the front line, supposedly. And like, 
getting old women um, picking them up. Yeah, I thought the Mozart group seemed kind of legit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what platforms are you on? Um, right now, I'm only on um, Instagram. Um, I may move to Twitter. Um, I'm actually I'm in the process of making a, a Substack as well, which that's also another reason why I may not actually join Forward is Over because he kind of made it abundantly clear that I'll have to shut down Sino Talk if I want to join him. So oh, like, really? Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like, so I'm like, I thought about it. Like, yeah, I mean, it would, it would be great to have the opportunity to work with them, but at the same time, it's like, is it worth it? Interesting. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, you should think about um, doing Telegram too. I'm on Telegram. Um, I may actually will do that. I may actually do that before Twitter, actually. Yeah, Twitter's kind of a hellhole, dude. If you could avoid it, I would suggest avoiding it. Yeah, I mean, I I plan on, like, joining or rejoining just because, like, Elon Musk was, like, bought it. But at the same time, it's like, do I really want to deal with this? Do I really want to deal with the BS? Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, that's yeah tw- Twitter's kind of, kind of ass- Dude, it's horrible. It's horrible. I <laughs> it's hate like, it so much, man. Yeah. Right. Like there, there's some there's some good like grassroots intelligence you can get from it and stuff, but it's just it's not worth like scrolling through the absolute sludge because now like they have that feature where like even stuff you don't follow posts up on your feed, like whether mm-hmm. it's advertisements or like a follower of a follower of a follower kind of thing, and you like see that shit, and it's like I do not. I, like I barely like Twitter as it is. I don't want to see this garbage. Like I'm here for like very specific stuff. It's mm-hmm. so irritating. Yeah. So but uh, no, Telegram. I like one thousand percent recommend. Yeah. Right. I'll probably go ahead and build one out like this weekend, hopefully. Yeah, it's super simple to make. And, and you can post like whatever you want there too. Based. Yes. <laughs> Any of the poo memes are incoming. Yeah. It's like minus one million constantly. social credit. That's fine. It's not, it's not as if I'm going to go back to China anytime soon. It'll be fine. <laughs> if I do, it'll be irony. It's like, you're under arrest. I'm like, why? Oh, they show like a, a, a binder full of memes that I sent. I was like, <laughs> those are funny. Yeah. They show this podcast. Yeah, they saw the pocket like, yeah, that wasn't a, that, yeah, I was like, yeah, I mean, I would be like, come on, you had to agree, I mean, she's kind of a vain person, and like, let's, let's be honest, I mean, he got rid of Winnie the Pooh. That wasn't very cash money of you. Yeah, as they take me to the Google log. <laughs> it's kind of funny, like, for, for all of the, like, how important he is in international politics and stuff like that. I have never heard his voice. But like I've never actually like heard one of his speeches or anything like that. It's always just like photos and videos of him like not speaking and stuff. It's kind of surreal. That's funny. I don't know if I have either. Yeah, I, no, I, he speaks under very 
um, rare circumstances because his voice is not the best. Does that make sense? Like it goes back to Chinese pop, uh, China, uh, communist propaganda. Like he's not a really good speaker. Um, he's very muted. Um, I want to say sometimes it just seems like he was just afraid to speak or make speeches. Interesting. Yeah. So that's why that's the reason why you you very rarely see him. And if you do, I guarantee you the um the sound bites would be lowered to where you can't really hear his voice but you can still read the uh chinese characters what he's saying and then it would end like in 15 seconds at most that's interesting yeah that mm -hmm. is interesting hmm. like uh yeah i mean i that's one of the that's one of the uh, benefits of um listening to um of actually staying in china is because you're just bombarded with chinese state media everywhere you go especially in the hotel rooms if you're or especially in the hotels like you're just going to be bombarded yeah they may put on like a basketball game or a soccer game but any other time it's going to be like cctv or like global times tv Okay. Well, Josh, I'll let you take this time if you want to shout out your page or any companies or organizations or anything like that. Okay. Uh, yeah. So obviously my main, my main work is on Instagram at good political one word. Um, but my goofy with a lot of their restrictions and stuff like that. I've moved a lot over to Telegram. I have a Twitter, don't use it so much. So, you know, I don't really recommend following that all too much, but um, Telegram is always pumping out stuff. Of course, big things over at Atlas News. Um, we're actually, I'm running a newsletter over there right now, which is gonna be coming out relatively soon, which is super cool. And then of course, obviously the work at Lethal Minds, can't recommend them enough, um, especially the bulletin. Um, and then also uh, Defense Politics Asia, they're a, in East Asia based, uh, like grassroots think tank. Um, they do fantastic work and it's mostly just one guy. Um, but I, you know, I help out contribute there and stuff like that, but they are, they're awesome. So I really recommend, especially because we were, we were just talking about China and Taiwan and stuff like that. If you really want something like on the ground in the area, great place to follow. Um, they're on Instagram, but they're mostly on YouTube, but, but yeah, no, definitely, uh, check me out on Instagram at good political and Atlas News and Lethal Minds Journal are big as well, so. And what, sorry, what's that channel? It's Defense Politics Asia? Yeah, Defense Politics Asia. They have an Instagram, it's relatively small, but their YouTube is fairly decent sized. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Okay, boys, well, um, this has been great having you guys on. We've been at this for a bit. Yes, sir, yes, we have. Yeah, oh. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a lot longer than I thought it has. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, I have to do this again at some point. No, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I'm exactly. always going to make time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I work from home, so I pretty much That's have a nice. limited time to do this stuff, so. Yeah, same. I mean, I'm <laughs> well, hopefully.
or I made stretch jobs, hopefully in the near future of, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I'll let me hear how that goes. Yeah, I will. I'll let everyone know in the group chat. Be like, yeah, I didn't get um, gonna get selected for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> All right, boys. Well, um, yeah, I really appreciate you both coming on. And again, I had a lot of fun doing this. No, yeah, thanks so much, man. It's been an honor. Thank you for uh, having. Yeah, thank you for having us and letting us give our skills. Yeah, of course. Pleasure to work with you both on the bulletin and uh yeah, hopefully we got some good things coming this next year. Oh no doubt. 2023 is gonna be huge for all of us. Exactly. Yeah, I'm excited. Definitely. Mm -hmm. But all right, gents, thanks. And I'll talk to you guys later. Yeah, see yeah. you guys around. See you guys. See you later. So I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Thank you very much for listening to it. Um if you have any feedback, please feel free to let me know. Uh, let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. I really appreciate any feedback at all. Also, I really want to uh, take the time to just thank you guys for supporting us, um, especially in 2022. You know, we experienced some pretty good growth in 2022, and that's thanks to your guys' support, and uh, it really does mean a lot to me. And if you want to continue to listen to this podcast, you can find that on your favorite apps. That's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. And it's all one word. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash Analyze Educate. Or you could also do Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com slash Analyze Educate. Uh, I am working on another news episode that should be out in a couple days at the most, hopefully. And then after that, I'm going to edit another podcast we did. That was uh, myself, Northern Provisions, and Colin Mayfield. He's a photojournalist, and I really enjoyed doing that one as well. We talked about some pretty good topics, so um, I'm excited to put that one out for you guys. I really hope you enjoy it. And that is all I have for you right now. We'll see you around.